If you would, go ahead and please remain standing and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. And we will begin reading in verse 25 through the end of the chapter. That's Romans 11, beginning in verse 25, sorry. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too, so too have now, have also, ah, sorry, I got lost here. So too they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Please be seated. You'll have to forgive me today if I trip over my words. Because this text is actually a fairly difficult text to preach or teach. Or even just to read to wrap our heads around. I'm reminded of a quote from Richard Baxter from the Reformed Pastor that says, Study hard, for the well is deep, but our brains are shallow. And that is no more true when he said it than when it is today. And the reason for this is we can get hung up on a few phrases in this text. And it's my desire that we don't get hung up on that today but that we look at this text in the context of what Paul has been writing and we have been walking through for so long. So as we continue going verse by verse through this text, we find ourselves at the end of chapter 11. So just as a quick reminder, beginning in about chapter 9 through the end of 11, Paul is focused on a few things. He's focused on God's sovereignty and salvation. He's focused on election and predestination But he's done so all under the umbrella of a single question that he asks. Has God's word failed for Israel? Has God's promises for Israel failed? In Romans 9, Paul shared his deep desire for his kinsmen to repent and to believe in Christ. And we're going to be flipping around a lot today between... 9, 10, 11, so just be ready for that. At the very beginning of Romans 9, 
He writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother, my kinsman, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all the children of Abraham belong to Israel. And not all the children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Ethnic Israel had this idea that they were God's chosen people and that through nothing but their birth and the keeping of the law, that salvation rightly belonged to them. But even in the Old Testament, we see that not all of ethnic Israel is a part of spiritual Israel. So, has God's word for Israel failed? Does God have a different plan of salvation for Israel than he has for the Gentiles? Has God's historical purposes for the nation of Israel failed? Well, Paul spends three chapters here answering these questions. And it can be boiled down to one simple sentence. Of course, God's word has not failed. It's not failed because we see that all who God elects to salvation are either saved or will be saved. God has not failed because the promise of salvation was never meant to include all of Israel. It's already been revealed in Romans and in all honesty, the Old Testament as well, and in many other places, that not all Israel would be saved and that some Gentiles would be saved. This is nothing new that Paul is saying here. God's word has not failed because Israel is the one that is responsible for their unbelief, not God. God's word hasn't failed because he lovingly and mercifully left a remnant of believing Jews even through today. God's word hasn't failed because the, sin, the salvation of the Gentiles was meant to produce envy in Israel. And it was meant to be a means of saving some of Israel. And as we'll see today in our text, God's word hasn't failed because in the end, Israel will be saved, thus fulfilling God's promises to his people. So let's begin reading in verse 25 of our text. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Paul starts with this word mystery. And this mystery is in regards to the salvation of his people. But this word isn't how we use it today. 
When we talk about mysteries, we talk about either some secret knowledge that we can gain, we talk about puzzles that need to be solved. He's not talking about knowledge that you can gain if you're clever or smart enough or you do enough reading. Paul uses the word mystery here to refer to something that at one point in time was unknowable, something that could not be arrived at by any amount of human reasoning, something that has now been revealed by God himself through inspired teachers such as Paul. So we're talking about a mystery unknowable until God reveals it to Paul and it's found in our inspired scripture. This mystery begins with a partial hardening that has come over his, Israel. And this isn't hard to see. We see it many times over the Old Testament. We can see it today as we look out at Israel today. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 52% is what I read. 52% of Israel do not believe that there is a God, period. The vast, vast majority of believing Jews do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We can still see this partial hardening today. And I say partial because Paul says partial. That's the main reason. But it's partial because we still see Jews being saved today. As we looked at in the last couple of weeks, Paul uses himself as an example to come back and say, how do you know this is partial? Look at me. I'm a Jew, and I believe. We've already discussed so many times, but it, but it bears re repeating, that God is sovereign over his creation. He has the right the power, the ability, however you want to word it, to do whatever it is that he wills with his people. If you turn back to Romans 9, beginning in verse 14, it says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He uses Pharaoh as an example, saying, For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. If we read just a couple of verses further, we see the purpose of, for God showing mercy and for hardening. And that purpose is for showing his glory. Verse 20 says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Why? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he, which God has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. 
throughout these three chapters, we see a beautiful truth that we must never forget. And we need to remind ourselves daily. God is not a little kid with an ant farm and a magnifying glass. His will is for a purpose. We may not always understand that purpose, but it is for his purposes. So God's partial and passing hardening of his chosen people is for a purpose. It's a part of his plan, and it serves only to glorify his name. And here's the beautiful part for you and I, assuming that none of us are Jews here or Israelites uh, by birth. The beauty of it for the Gentiles is that the hardening of his people made a way for the Gentiles to be saved. If we look back a little bit in chapter 11 and in verse 11, it says, so I asked, did they, the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespasses mean riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their inclusion mean? So what is the end result of this partial and temporary hardening for the Jewish people? It's salvation for the Gentiles. And when will this hardening end? When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And this is where it gets a little bit tricky. And this is where I say we could get hung up for weeks if we wanted to on this. And I really don't want to. What does Paul mean by the end? What, what, what by the fullness of the Gentiles has come in? I would love to stand here today and tell you that I'm smart enough and I know exactly what this means and I can say without a shadow of a doubt what the fullness of the Gentiles is, but I honestly don't know. Great theologians still debate this today on what the fullness of the Gentile is. Obviously, God is omniscient. He has all knowledge, past, present, and future. He has no need to learn anything or gather information because he's all-knowing. Therefore, it would make sense that God knows what the full number of the Gentiles is. As we've talked about throughout Romans, again, God is sovereign in all things, including salvation. He chooses us before the foundation of the world. Therefore, he would know the full number of the Gentiles. But does that mean that there will be a time when no more Gentiles will be saved? I don't know. Or is this when the gospel has been offered to every tribe, tongue, and nation? I think that's a very likely option. A lot of people would go back and tie this to Luke chapter 21, when Jesus tells of the destruction of the temple. In Luke 21, he says, They will fall by the edge of the sword and, led, and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. I think this is a very unlikely option, in my opinion, because we still see a pervasive hardening of Israel today. Or is this an, es uh, an eschatology argument where Christ will return and make himself known to the, Gentile, or to the Jewish people? 
Ultimately, we don't know, but I don't think that's the main point of what Paul's talking about here. What we can't miss out on is what Paul does clearly say, that the hardening of the Jews is temporary, it's partial, that when the fullness of the Gentiles, whenever that may be, has come in, the hardening for Israel will be lifted. This pervasive hardening of God's chosen people is not permanent. It will be lifted, and it serves God's purposes. And throughout this hardening, as I said, we can still see it today, he has kept a remnant of Jewish believers throughout all of history. If we continue in verse 26 of our text, we see the method of Israel's salvation. And I want to make sure we don't make the mistake of too closely tying verse 25 with 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. A lot of people read this as going back and saying, there's a hardening on Israel until the Gentiles come in. And this way, they'll be saved. That's not what it says here. It talks about the hardening. It talks about the hardening being lifted. And then it starts a new sentence and saying, and this is the way that Israel will be saved. And he quotes about four different verses from the Old Testament. Now, there's another thing we can get hung up here again, and I don't want to. It says, in this way, all of Israel will be saved. What does it mean that all of Israel will be saved? But that's not where I want to focus today. I want to focus on the and in this way portion of this. How will Israel be saved? While we may not know the meaning of what it means that all Israel will be saved, we know the way of salvation. And here's the important part. It's been the same way from the beginning of time. It's always been based on faith. It's always been through the grace of God. It's not a, it, it is a work of God. It's not a work of man. So this is where we need to focus today. This is the way that the Lord will fulfill his promises of salvation for his people. So the quotes that he uses is actually a mashup of about three or four possible Old Testament texts. So first we see that a deliverer will come from Zion. In Isaiah 59, 20, which is where this, that portion most likely comes from, it says, And a Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions. So we have a Deliverer coming, and we have repentance. Second, we have the Deliverer will banish ungodliness from Jacob. In Isaiah 7, or 27, verse 9, it says, Therefore, by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no ashram or incense altars will remain standing. Third, God would establish his covenant promises of forgiving sins. In Jeremiah 31, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. 
this method should sound very familiar to us. A deliverer comes. He brings his people to repentance. He makes them holy, and he forgives their sins according to God's covenant promises. That is the way of salvation. It's the same way for the Jews as it is for the Gentiles. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, Let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may, all, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except for, through me. We notice that Jesus does not go on to say, except for the Jews, except for Israel. They come a different way. No, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. It's the same way throughout the entirety of redemptive history. In Romans chapter 10, Paul prayed for the salvation of Israel. In chapter 11, we see clearly that salvation comes to the Gentiles, and, and through that arouses the envy of Israel. And when this partial hardening of Israel is removed, it says Israel will experience salvation from sin through faith in Christ. Now, I, do, I, I don't believe that Paul is talking about some national uh, or ethnic salvation. I don't think Paul is talking about here the rebuilding of the temple or the continuing of sacrifices. What he's talking about is the method of salvation for his people, Jew or Gentile. Jesus made it very clear in John chapter 6. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whomever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, we don't have a little parenthetical statement after it that says, unless you're of Israel. All of salvation, whether Jew or Gentile, is a work of God. Paul describes this very well in Ephesians 2. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul started our text today with, Lest you be wise in your own sight. It says, Lest we as Gentiles become full of ourselves. 
lest we become prideful because of this hardening on God's people. Lest we somehow think that we're better than Israel. Lest we become conceited in the gifts of God. We need a reminder that salvation is all of God and none of man. What we have here is a small window into the, the larger picture of redemptive history. And redemptive history is the story of how God sovereignly acting among sinners brings those who he chooses and he chooses from his own free will, not because of a person's character, not because of their works, not because they're good enough, but in spite of all that, he works to bring those that he has elected to salvation. Why? For the purposes of his glory. Paul continues in verse 28 of our text. says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election... They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have, rejected, have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too have, now, have they now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. There's a lot going on in these verses here, and it's actually a continuation of verses 11 through 24 in chapter 11. We see a lot of yous and nays in here, so it can be easy to get a little bit confused. The theys in these verses are the unbelieving Jews. The yous are the believing Gentiles. So throughout chapter 11, we see what John, called, what John Stott called a chain of blessings, the chain of blessings. He starts with Israel's transgressions and the salvation of the Gentiles. He moves on to Israel's envy and much better blessings. He gives the allegory of the olive tree, the breaking off of natural branches, the grafting in of the wild shoot, the grafting back in of some of the natural branches. Then we hit today's text, and we see the divine mystery of Israel's salvation. So if we go back and look at this again in verse 28. As regards to the gospel, they, the, the unbelieving Jews, are enemies for your sakes, the Gentiles. But as regard election, again, we're talking about the Jews. They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So for just as at one time the Gentiles were disobedient to God, but they have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so too now Israel being disobedient will be shown mercy. We see God's purposes in redemptive history. This hardening of Israel is not vindictive. We see God's sovereignty working throughout redemptive history. 
we see clearly that God isn't just reacting to the actions of man as if he was somehow surprised that we were going to be sinners. But rather, as Paul writes in Romans 8, he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those who he called also justified, and those who he justified, he also glorified. This was always God's plan. But people have a hard time with this. You can read news stories just from this week that'll just break your heart. How can God allow such evil things in this world? How can a sovereign God hold his creation responsible? Even looking at the holy word of God, so many will just say it's just filled with rules and laws that have no purpose for us today. You'll hear some preachers go back and say, we don't really need the Old Testament. We don't need to read the whole Bible, but just the stuff in the red letters. That's all you really need. But church family, we, we hold in our hands the very breathed out words of our creator. We hold out the hands of, we hold in our hands the revelation of a holy, perfect, righteous, just, all-powerful, I could go on and on, God. We have a window into the fullness of God's redemptive plans for his creation. So many people take the Bible and, and they say, well, you know, I like this book, I like this book, some parts are boring. But too often we forget that it's one big story of God's redemptive purposes for us. Just take a quick tour through the redemptive history in Scripture. We start with creation. We start with the fall of man. We see God's hatred for sin, but also his mercy in the flood and the rescue of Noah and his family. We see the era of the patriarchs. We see Israel being held captive in Egypt. We see God bring his people out of Egypt. We see the wandering in the wilderness. We come to the conquest era where Israel receives their promised land. We see the time of the judges and this bouncing back and forth that we see over and over and over in judges of Israel becoming disobedient, God raising up a judge, calling his people back to himself, Israel obeying until they start to disobey again. We see Israel wanting a, an earthly king. We see Saul and David and Solomon come. We see Israel be divided between Israel and Judah. We see the fall of Israel, the fall and exile of Judah. We see God bringing his people back to rebuild. Skip to the New Testament. We have the birth of Christ. We have the ministry of Christ. We have the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. We see the early apostolic era. We see Christ's return, and in the end, we see the consummation of God's holy but marred creation. 
It's not a book just filled with stories. It's not a collection of rules and laws. It's not just history or beautiful poetry. In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer writes, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Paul writes in 2 Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every work. If you've never taken the time to go through the Bible in, the enti- in its entirety and study, study redemptive history, we miss out on such a beautiful picture of God not reacting to us, not some weak God that, that can only react to whatever it is that we do. But we see God from, honestly, before creation to creation to the redeeming of his people, to the glorification of his people, to the consummation of his creation. Scripture contains the fullness of God's plan for salvation. And this is why it's important. As we read in months ago in Romans chapter 3. Paul writes that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. A few chapters later, he writes, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. As we look at this text today, And really, Romans 9, 10, 11, we see God actively working through redemptive history. We see that, yes, there is a partial and temporary hardening on Israel, but it serves a purpose to bring in the Gentiles. And bringing in the Gentiles raises envy within Israel, and through that, Israel will be saved. It's not just a coincidence. This was God's plan. It's only through the sovereign working of God, through the completed work of his son, that man can be called to salvation. But even as we spent so much time in these chapters talking about God's sovereignty 
and salvation and how no one comes unless he is called. I want to be very clear today that if you're here today and you've not placed your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, then you desperately need to do that. You need to repent. You need to turn away from your sin. God's sovereignty and salvation does not negate man's responsibility to act. John MacArthur was asked one day how you reconcile man's responsibility with God's complete and utter sovereignty. In one answer he gave, divine predestination, divine providence, divine power, divine purpose, divine planning does not void human responsibility. In another answer he gave, he said, now if you have a problem matching up God's sovereignty with human responsibility, admit that you don't know everything and the problem is solved. Because we also know that the gospel extends to the end of the earth, and Jesus was the one who said, Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We understand the gospel invitation. We understand the call. We understand the tears of Jesus over those who wouldn't come. We understand the responsibility of the sinner who rejects the gospel and perishes. That that sinner is being punished for his own choice. We understand that. How that harmonizes with that doctrine, I do not understand. I may never understand it, even in eternity, because I will never be God. But I will not let God, I will, sorry, I will let God be God, and I will not redefine God on my own terms. Paul so clearly teaches us God's sovereignty and salvation. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Every single one of us are sinners, and every single one of us are deserving of death. Our righteousness cannot save us for one very good reason, because we're not righteous. The law can't save us. Its only purpose was to point us to our need in Christ. Only Jesus, the Son of God, putting on flesh, living a perfect life, dying a sinner's death on the cross, raising from the dead on the third day, ascending to heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Only Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to believers, that's the only thing that can save us. And God is sovereign in that work. Be very clear, God is sovereign. Man plays no role in that work. Yet we're still called to believe. Paul even says it in Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 11, where he writes, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This will be another time in this sermon that I'll have to sit and say, I don't know how that works. But we can't deny the joint truths that are found in scripture, that God is sovereign in that work. If you have come to belief in Christ, that is a work of God. 
but we will be held responsible for not doing it. So for any here today that have not repented of their sins and placed their, their trust in Christ alone for salvation, there's nothing else we can do except beg you to repent and believe as Scripture does. For believers, we need to be reminded, we need to remind ourselves constantly of God's sovereign working throughout history from creation to the future consummation of the world. We need to be reminded that God did not act because we did something. That God is sovereign in all that he does and that whatever happens today is God's plan. And I know that's hard to hear in certain seasons of our life. But the more we meditate on it, the more that we believe the truth of what we find in Scripture. As we read uh, the very first thing this morning, not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from the will of God. And are we not worth more than a sparrow? Each and every week, after we partake in the Lord's Supper, we close with the doxology. Everyone knows the words to it, I hope, at this point, because we've been doing it for a long time. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's my prayer that we meditate this week upon these truths. That even when we don't know why something happens, or we don't understand why things are happening the way they are in our lives, that we can depend on the truth that we worship a God that's omnipotent, omniscient, immutable, sovereign, loving, jealous, just. We need to soak in that. You'll notice I left the last three verses off because I thought what a better closing to today's sermon than to just let Paul do it for us. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls these verses the great doxology. Paul finishes this long and beautiful discussion on salvation and redemptive history and God's sovereignty and God working throughout history and God keeping his promise. He ends it with verses 33 through 36 where he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of God or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be glory forever. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, too often we forget to sit and remind ourselves of the attributes, the truths that we find in Scripture, how you've revealed yourself to us. So many times we, we try and weaken you, we try and make you smaller than you are. 
but you are the name above every name. Lord, you are holy, holy, holy. You possess all power, all wisdom, all knowledge, Lord. Be with us as we go through this week and remind us of the truths found in your scripture, Lord, that even in the times in our lives when we may not see it, that you are sovereignly working all things together for good for those who believe in you. As we continue in worship this morning, I pray that you would help us to meditate on your word. It's in your heavenly name we pray. Amen.